I'm Louisa Wilcox, and this is Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. We introduce you to scientists, filmmakers, policy experts, and others who share their insights and experience speaking and working on behalf of the bear. At a time of unprecedented human-caused change, grizzlies depend on us more than ever. To learn more about what's happening and how you can help, subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I am thrilled to have this opportunity to talk to a man I'm honored to call a friend who's one of the most talented and dedicated photographers of wild animals and whose devotion to his craft has taken him to remote country on all seven continents. Tom is especially famous for his photography of wildlife in the Great Yellowstone ecosystem and for his book, The Grizzlies of Pilgrim Creek, with author Todd Wilkinson, that features a grizzly bear known as 399, perhaps the most famous grizzly in the world. In our own ways and for over four decades, Tom and I have been on a journey towards a more compassionate way of treating our fellow non-human travelers. It's a journey that's been fraught and bruising for many of us. And the stakes cannot be higher with the catastrophic extinctions of species caused by human persecution, intolerance, and development, now compounded by the threat of climate change. Tom was among the first who led me to think deeply about the institutional problems of state wildlife management, a system that still views carnivores as varmints. I just want to thank you, Tom, for your passion and your commitment to the wild and for being here today. Thank you, Louisa. It's great to talk with you again after uh, a while, and uh, we have a long history, as you mentioned, and um, long friendship, and thank you for all you have done for grizzly bears and the wild, and uh, <laughs> of course, your husband, Dave. He's done so yep. much, too, and have a lot of respect <laughs> for both of you, of course. Thank you. Well, we're all part of the clan of the bear, I think, and thank yeah, you, okay. uh, Tom. You're welcome. Well, maybe you can start by sharing some about your roots along the Platte River and and your journey from being a boy who trapped and hunted to to a man who chose a camera to shoot with instead. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in Grand Island, Nebraska. My three brothers, both my uh, parents were from there. My grandparents were from there. And um, so right along that far up the interstate, which a lot of people recognize only because they pass going somewhere else, I think. Um, <laughs> and the Platte River is adjacent to I-80. And um, when I was a boy, there was no interstate or big highways. And it was a great place to grow up. And my dad had a cabin on the Platte, uh, mostly a hunting cabin, one-room schoolhouse. And he had hunted there since 1932. And and uh, that's how I grew up, uh, hunting and fishing with him. And, and um, my brothers were also pretty avid duck hunters in those days, and they kind of fell away from it over the years. But I I was the uh, sort of the black sheep that uh, was more interested in being outdoors than my three brothers. But it had a, the river had a big influence on me, as my, of course, my dad did. As he was pretty... Um, um, crazy about hunting and fishing, and and uh, we spent our summers um, 
getting ready for the hunt, upcoming hunting season would be painting our decoys, making decoys, and cutting brush for making it better for duck blinds. And and um, I didn't know any better. And when hunting season came along, we spent every every possible opportunity I had to you know getting out of school, uh, taking off extra days when the snow snow was flying and the geese and ducks were flying and my dad would call the priest at uh, St. Mary's uh, considered while I was going to school and uh, he'd say, well, you know, Tommy would like to go hunting tomorrow and we get some, get a dispensation for a couple of days of going hunting. And his bribe was that he would uh, give him, uh, we'd take him ducks and geese uh, <laughs> we were hunting. So we always got up anyway. I, I, I Never saw, uh, watched football games or did a lot of things on weekends except playing and fishing, which was um, I was passionate about. But during all those years, I think I spent I learned a lot about animal animal behavior. Just watching, um, other than ducks and geese, you know, beavers and muskrats and and um, a lot of other animals, you know, other birds, of course. But I think it was that love of the river and love of, of being out more than killing something. My dad wasn't big on, on killing. And, and so, um, but it was about the sport, you know, it was mostly about the sport of, or the challenge or maybe the, the game in a way of, of, um, hunting and fooling ducks or geese, what it might be to, and to, that drove me in a way to to photography in the end. I I trapped for a while. My dad was sort of a classic um, um, Midwest person who was taught that you know there were animals that were sort of the good guys, and that would be the you know the pheasants and quail and ducks and geese and cranes, and and then there were the bad guys, which are the raccoons and possums and skunks and foxes and coyotes. Who were the egg eaters, you know, or the bird eaters, and mm-hmm. and uh, so he said we should trap somebody. We had a lot of raccoons that he he thought we should um, call some of them. And so when I was about ten or twelve years old, I I read up on trapping, and um, I uh, saw an article in a Field and Stream magazine, a little um, advertisement to put about taxidermy. So I. So I got all this information about trapping and taxidermy, and I started trapping along the river. And uh, I remember one day I uh, I uh, found a foot of a raccoon in one of my traps, and and then I realized that uh, the uh, raccoon was obviously chewed his leg off to save himself. And that made um, made me think. I suppose it's what courage and what what um, heart this raccoon would do to set himself free. And then about three or four days later, I caught a three-legged raccoon, a three-footed raccoon, and realized she oh. had come back again because he was probably hungry. And and um, then I thought that's really. Uh, of course, I had to shoot him. I skinned all the all the animals that I trapped, possums and coons and muskrats and stuff. But uh, 
Yeah, they sent them to sold them to a local furrier, and but I think that was one of oh, sort of a eye-opening experience, or maybe an epiphany that this poor raccoon had 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 to chew his leg off mm-hmm. and or his foot off. And I went to my dad and I said, you know, uh, this is really this is really phenomenal. I don't understand. And so he said, maybe we should just quit trapping. He realized that that was not a it was a cruel behavior. And so it was one of the early lessons I suppose that um I learned that animals are so um I don't know, special and intelligent and, and you know, they just have a, I wanted to um wanted so hard to live and then we you know, it's so easy for us to kill them that mm-hmm. um I changed a lot of my behavior in those early years. You know, I was still hunting ducks for many years after that and geese. And But the more I learned about hunting and, and the more I felt for the birds, um, uh, the more I wanted to get away from that. And I started photographing and, uh, when I graduated from college. So uh, I put up, hung up the gun and started taking pictures of the camera instead and which was a lot more rewarding. And, mm-hmm. and so that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you've talked a lot over the years about your view on killing wild animals, especially for recreational hunting opportunities, and how that robs everyone of the thrill and the wonder of being in the presence of the wild. Uh, maybe you can elaborate a bit on this. Um, yeah, the uh, I think most most of what I uh, was concerned about is, is hunting for trophies and things like grizzlies and wolves and not so much um, because we ate everything we did it sportingly and and ethically as you know one might uh, um, you know as far as the bird hunting and the ducks and geese when it was you know, we didn't shoot things at too far of a distance, we, you know, so we'd kill it cleanly as possible and all that. But when I, and we did, there weren't any garrisons, obviously, or cougars or anything left in Nebraska. There were at one time, but um, it, um, I was never against hunting for meat or for, for people mm-hmm. who wanted to put the food on their table for the kids and their family. And, and I still feel that way pretty much. I just became against mm-hmm. shooting animals like cougars and grizzlies were quote which is really fun mm-hmm. uh, under the name of sport there's no sport in shooting either one of those species or wolves for that matter and of course my lesson with the raccoon made me realize how barbaric trapping is and how much animals suffer and and uh, how pathetic it is so i uh, and beyond that you know that is not only are you killing an animal, say a grizzly bear, that maybe spend part of his t- life in a park, or wolf spends part of his life in Yellowstone or Teton Park, but once it goes out of the park, it um, might get shot, and so it never comes back in the park. And then people come to the parks like Yellowstone, the Tetons, you know, would love to see a grizzly or, or a wolf. And um, one guy who's who's bent on trapping or killing grizzlies and wolves and cougars does steal that opportunity for millions of people um, 
with one bullet, uh, one person, one bullet, an animal, um, like 399, for instance, which we'll t- I'll tell you about later, but um, I don't know, 5 million people came to Teton Park this last year, and mm. probably uh, 500,000 of those saw a bear or a, a wolf, and if they were shot or trapped, uh, that would steal that opportunity from a half million people, which seems pretty um, uh, selfish and stupid. And for somebody whose ego um, is driven by killing and hanging something on the wall. So, um, yes, I'm very, and even the big animals, like, you know, trophies like elk and, and sheep, bighorn sheep or whatever it might be is, is uh, sort of questionable. Most of those are all eaten, but then uh, you get to Africa and people who go there and shoot, you know, elephants or leopards or lions. Um, same thing. It's really pathetic. And when you see, uh, to be political, but I saw Eric and Donald Trump Jr. with a Big mm-hmm. leopard trophy leopard over one shoulder and the tail of the elephant that uh, one of the boys were holding up after he shot the elephant. I I was just nauseated. But so I just wish people would you know um, speak out against trophy hunting and hunting animals quote for fun. That there's n- nothing for the species and nothing for humanity and. And uh, people's enjoyment, it's just beyond my comprehension now. But it, it took a long long time for me to come to that conclusion, I suppose, because when I was a kid, I was shooting with my BB gun and air rifles, you know, sparrows and <laughs> other birds. And, of course, when there's my shotgun, my dad was shooting ducks and geese and pheasants. But um, it took me a while to come to all these things. But it was, it's good for me because... The hunting gave me the background to uh, have the patience um, that I do now for mm-hmm. photography, which is no different, and the skill and the craft of sort of knowing where to be, you know, during the what season and and um, place for getting photographs. It also gave me a, um, the knowledge of, you know, how important hunting is to some people. It was to me in those days. And mm-hmm. and then I sort of evolved or, I don't know, grew out of it, um, out of the killing. And because I learned too much about the animal itself, of how sentient they are and intelligent, beautiful, and family life mm-hmm. and you know, all their social being that they are. So um, it's, I'm, I'm lucky, and people can't say now, you know, tell me that I'm a tree hugger or something. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And the hunter's <laughs> paper, you know, mm. you know, now that a new new term is a bark biter, you know, that's a good one. Tree hugger to bark <laughs> biter, but <laughs> I'm happy to be called either one if that makes people feel good. But um, it's uh, I've got since I grew up hunting, I know all the all the ins and outs and all the rationale and and. Uh, I won the world's goose calling championship a couple of times and a duck calling championship in Nebraska. And so I, obviously I spent okay. a lot of time hunting. So hunters can't call me, you know, they'll, you know, they pay for, pay for all the wildlife that us 
common folk or photographers or tourists enjoy, and that's totally crap. Um, but, you know, I've learned a lot over the years and, and uh, come to different conclusions. Well, also, you know, over the years, it's impossible to ignore uh, the growing severity of our global extinction crisis, you know, for not only from the behaviors you describe of, uh, you know, excessive killing, but, you know, excessive uh, consumption and now the massive problem of climate change. Tom, how have you personally been affected by the crisis? And maybe how do you see your art as a way of helping to tackle the problems? Well, you know, it's there's just too many people on Earth, is number one, and that's mm-hmm. the major reason for climate change. And, you know, Paul Ehrlich wrote many years ago about uh, population explosion, and, and we don't really talk that much about population anymore. I'm not sure why, but um, maybe it's not so we PC, need to. but <laughs> we need to, yeah. But that's just really drives climate change. and and uh changing habitats and you know we're just losing habitat because there's too many people and you, and you go to the big places like uh, the amazon which is being burned for palm oil or, or whatever you know trees are cleared and which not only destroys habitat but um adds to um pollution and warming of the earth and so there's a lot of it's it comes from and the u.s is right up there with the things we do with um affecting climate it's not just you know countries like brazil or or africa um mm-hmm. but when i was in antarctica last year um south georgia island where the penguins most of the penguins are I saw some glaciers I saw 10 or 15 years ago that were once they you know, they were tidewater glaciers they they came down to you know there'd the, be a little beach and and they're massive maybe um, 20 stories high 30 stories high and uh, a mile wide and uh, yeah. what was a gla- glacier 10 years ago we were actually floating on last year because they had melted and, and they were gone. And so those kinds of things are really obvious and and in in front of me, people. But then you know you multiply that by the big all the glaciers that are melting and the the rise of the oceans and and what's going to happen. And you know it's pretty, you know, climate deniers are uh, uh, pretty. Um, I don't know. I I don't think it's that they're unintelligent. There, I think it's more about money obviously in politics and and i just don't know how anybody could deny that there is climate change when it's so obvious and it's Mm -hmm. affecting so many species in so many ways um birds and mammals of course people people living on islands get get flooded out a lot of our coastal areas in 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 the united states are going to get flooded out and we need to we need to we need to do something now and it's uh really glad to see that yesterday um, President Biden is uh, introducing some bills to to help um, move to cleaner energy and renewable resources and away from the, the um, coal 
oil and gas. But yeah, it's about it's time, gonna, but at least he's yeah. showing leadership. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The last administration obviously didn't, and we went backwards so far um, in the past the past four years. Um, there's so many environmental regulations and laws and favoritism to oil and gas industries, and that it's going to take a while to a long time to get you know get back just to where we were four years ago, let alone where we should be mm-hmm. um, ten, 10 years ago. But as it starts, I'm, I'm hopefully optimistic that this administration will um, make some changes and, you know, rejoining the Paris Climate Accords and stuff is a big step. So I'm hopeful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that this administration is not going to be able to get to as directly, I think, is the issue that you've been confronting for these many decades of state wildlife management. Um, These states, wildlife management in the country is done by states and and particularly in the West, they, in most cases, are the bastion of manifest destiny and the related notion that we not only hold dominion over the, all the world, but that we have the right to kill any animal that inconveniences us. Um, and even though there's this huge shift among most Americans away from this mentality, the institution still prioritizes you know, providing a shrinking minority of hunters with opportunities to kill stuff. And I remember you were one of the first people I knew who confronted Wyoming Game and Fish Managers about their treatment of wildlife, especially cougars. Uh, Maybe you can talk a little bit about what it's been like for you to navigate this fraught arena. I think growing up again, uh, I think I was taught to respect um, um, state agencies or the police or the cops or the federal, (laughs) you know, game wardens or whoever it might be, but I was just, you know, that's what we did. And, and then I started, you know, questioning a lot of things when I got a little bit older, like in college and high school, and 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 then see how, you know, how most of our wildlife management is based on it's just based on hunting and or fishing, but mostly say on hunting. The laws are written to in favor of of. Um, the hunters and in favor of killing basically as many animals of the species in a particular area as that area and species will, can tolerate before maybe the population retreats or crashes. And that's uh, and all in favor of taking, you know, selling as many licenses as possible and pleasing the hunters and the outfitters for their money that they uh, gain from uh, guiding um, say hunters for uh, whether it be elk or deer or cougars or bears or whatever maybe. But they're they're totally beholden to the game and fish department beholden to the hunters who who you know depending on whether they're hunting for the family, it'd be one thing again for meat on the table or for trophies, but it goes again to um, you know, who has a right or the animal itself has its own rights, of course. And the uh, right to kill something is questionable, um, especially for sport. And the game and fish seems to ignore that. And when I asked um, 
Dan Thompson, who's the head of the um, um, my dog out there barking at a tree tree squirrel. So it's <laughs> great. Yeah, I need to train train him better. Yeah. So um, I I started the Cougar Fund, as you may know, maybe uh, 1999 because I watched a family of cougars on Miller Butte National Elk Refuge for 42 days. And I watched a female cougar that uh, had three kittens that were about eight or ten weeks old. Uh, she would disappear every evening and go hunting, you know, and she might be gone for uh, 24 hours or 36 hours some days, and she'd come back and then there's the cubs. And, and I realized after during those 42 days that she didn't come back, that uh, the, the kittens would starve to death because they're totally dependent on her coming back. And, and unlike wolves that bring, you know, food back or coyotes, um, she, she's nursing these kittens, and they have no chance of – they can't leave the den. They can't leave this cave. And so uh, when, when there were days – there were 36 hours or one day, it was like 40 hours. She didn't return mm. it at all. Crap, she probably got killed outside the, outside the refuge and the park – because there was a hunting season on cougars, and there was a, originally it was just a quote of one a few years before that, and there's a quote of two of how many they could take in this particular county or area. And then um, in that year, there was a quote of two, and it was proposed that they would raise a quota to six. So after the cougars left Miller Butte in, in late March when the um, elk started migrating and their food sources disappearing the, the cougars left the den and i went to the game fish and asked you know what protections you have for kittens uh getting orphaned and i knew that they were dependent on the mothers from anywhere from 12 to 24 months and which is a long period not like elk or mm-hmm. uh, deer or something it might be three four five six months and the the biologist there, Dave Brimmeyer, he told me he was, he was somewhat in charge of setting seasons and quotas and stuff. He, he said, well, you can see right here, and he showed me a full, uh, little brochure that said, um, you can't shoot cougars with cubs at side, which meant mm-hmm. you, know, you can't shoot a cougar that has cubs that are mm-hmm. next to it, I guess. And I looked at that and thought, well, you know, I'm not a cougar mountain lion um, biologist, but I, you know, watching this family for 42 days and she never took the cubs with her except up to the you know she'd kill the cow elk right at the top of the den and one day below the den one day but uh other than that she just traveled alone and the the kids just sat there and waited for her to come back and so i said well and they can't travel in deep snow it's a january february march and you know i said what i don't get it because it's, uh he's no he just, and so i looked at him and i said well she never took the cubs with her so how do you rationalize that? And he looked at me like, mm. are, are you kidding me? It's like he's living in a Disney world that, you know, mm. the cubs are in, in mountain lions are opportunistic and they're, they're um, hunters. You know, they, stalk, they, they hide in rocks or where it might be where an animal might pass by and sprint and kill it. But you can't have four cubs, three cubs or two cubs gambling about or all around you if you're going to be a right. ambush hunter. And so that alone, plus they can't walk in the snow, plus, plus. So it seems like if a game and fish guy who is in charge of 
uh, managing cougars and doesn't really know that much about their behavior, uh, it's pretty amazing that that kind of stuff happens, and it happens all the time everywhere, not just here, mm-hmm. not just that species, but that's when the lights went on for me and the bells went off, like, like holy shit, you know. Uh, they don't know. And <laughs> so I started going to game fish meetings and asking people about, you know, why, why are we killing cougars and leaving cubs to die in the den if they get hunted? And there were people, I said, in one meeting, big meeting, 50 people there, I said, how many people in this room think it's okay to uh, to kill a cougar and leave kittens starving to death? And two outfitters stood up and said, well, it's just collateral damage. It's like, well, mm-hmm. you, get, <laughs> I thought, you know, bombing villages in Vietnam or something, and you kill mm-hmm. a bunch of innocent kids. That's how cruel and how inhumane and how incredibly uh, barbaric that that was and that attitude. And so uh, we started the Cougar Fund to better educate people about the value of cougars on landscape and and uh, bears and bulls and everything else. But um, it was uh, amazing to me that that when I asked Dan Thompson uh, a year or two ago at a, at a um, forum that I had at the um, Center for the Arts here. Um, you know, why are we killing cougars? And and he said, well, it's because uh, we are mandated as a game of fish to provide hunting opportunity for our constituents, which I had heard from other people many times, that providing hunting opportunity for our constituents is the key phrase. And I said, so in mm-hmm. other words, you're, you're, you're providing fun for your constituents. So they're killing cougars for fun. Is that right? And he sort of stuttered for a minute. He said, yeah, that's basically it. He couldn't get out of it because there's no, uh, you know, and then, of course, over the years and and we're talking to you and Dave, of course, your husband who knows more about cougars than most everybody, um, <laughs> that there's no rash, rationale to kill cougars except for really, you know, face-to-face, you know, uh, one going to uh, is attacking your child or your horse or your foal or your, your cat or your dog maybe, but um, you know, everybody, and there's not, uh, um, anyway, so there's, we used to, it's a cougar film, we thought, well, we're not going to be those tree huggers, um, that, you know, if there are no more cougar hunting, uh, we were saying, okay, we'll play along with this, but, you know, can you like maybe protect the females? And, um, uh, they said, well, we don't, we don't shoot females, we shoot mostly males. And you look at the data and it's like 40% females are killed that year in 50% uh, mm. male. So in the same way in Colorado, we went to Colorado and found it the same thing. And the, the head of the commission in Colorado said, we don't shoot females in Colorado and you don't need to come here from Wyoming to tell us what to do. And I said, well, <laughs> you actually do shoot, shoot females. And I showed him the data, his own data, which he didn't know, but he was on the commission. And that's, that's a whole problem with, with the way our game of fish and management is set up. It's, it's driven by the, hunters, outfitters, uh, sportsmen for fish and wildlife, NRA, and then down to, you know, the, the, the governor points, um, the commissioners who make the final rules that are brought to them by the game fish department about what can be hunted, how many can be hunted, how many, how many can be killed. And in the commission, uh, who's made up generally of, 
of uh, non biologists, non scientists, non researchers. Um, for instance, in Wyoming, I think we have three lawyers, um, hmm. three uh, um, ranchers, um, and I think a insurance agent or something. But it's, it's always been that way. They don't have any environmentalists. They don't have any any people speaking from a scientific standpoint on the commission. And so it's a bunch, basically a bunch of good old boys who end up making the rules and regulations in the end about um, our wildlife. And when I'm saying our wildlife, it belongs to everybody. It does not belong to the just the hunters and the outfitters who make a lot of money on it. So... Uh, that's our that's our challenge is we really need to come up with a different game management system and it's very different difficult because it's been that way for so many years and it's ingrained and there's we've offered to we as in the conservationists we've offered to come up with uh, money for them so they don't you know they're losing license sales yearly so there's fewer and fewer hunters um, and they're going basically extinct and they're losing money, so they keep but they keep grasping onto the old ways. And even though they have people like me or others that say, "Well, we we can you know we can help raise habitat money for you with buying habitat stamps or whatever it might be," and but we also want a seat at the table. Well, mm-hmm. they're happy to take our money, but not to give us a seat at the table. So right. So that doesn't work. It just works against us. So it's just a. Mm-hmm. Uh, real difficult situation, but that's a main main problem. And I um, I've been to so many meetings, and you know they're required by law to have public hearings and things. But it's um, pretty much um, mm, so weighted towards hunters. They've they've been you know, they come to these meetings and. You're lucky to get out of their lives. You're, you know, I'm not again anti-hunter, but uh, mm-hmm. I think shooting again predators for fun is is uh, insane. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I've been truly terrified um, going to Wyoming Game and Fish uh, Commission meetings, and when wolves come up, I mean, it is really, uh, as a woman standing up in that venue, is is truly. It's really traumatizing, and it is, I think this debate is, as you say, um, having an opportunity to get a seat at the table for non-hunters, bird watchers, anybody who has a different ethos than killing, and that is, uh, you know, ultimately the challenge I think we face. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it is uh, so in these western states, even if, uh, even if the governor, if you had a governor who is sympathetic towards um, environmental ethics and things, he could he would be overridden by the legislature um, mm-hmm. who would then, then tell the commissioners, you know, what to do. But yeah. it's split politics. It's all about money and politics, as most things are. A- absolutely. Don't miss part two. For more on Tom's deep connection with the matriarch of Grand Teton National Park, Grizzly Bear 399, and the recent drama around stripping endangered species protections for Yellowstone grizzly bears and opening a sport hunt. If you want to learn more about the grizzly and what you can do to help, 
Subscribe to our newsletter at grizzlytimespodcast.org. And if you can, give us a review.